This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Heartland Daily Podcast. I'm Lenny Jarrett, Director of Heartland's Center for Education Opportunities and host of today's edition of the podcast. Today's guest is Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice. EdChoice is one of the leaders in the education choice movement with parent surveys, reviews of education choice studies on how students and how everything is working. And they've just released an education policy toolkit, which we'll talk to Jason about today. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on. So can you start off by telling us, what's the purpose of the education policy toolkit? Right. So we work with uh, policymakers and advocates on school choice legislation all across the country. And Frequently, they come to us for advice about how to design a school choice program. And there are numerous elements that go into the design of a school choice policy, just like any policy. Uh, So the questions of, uh, you know, who should be eligible, um, you know, which department is going to oversee or administer the program, what should the accountability look like, uh, all these sorts of questions come up. And As with any policy, there are trade-offs to going in one direction or a different direction. And so what our toolkit does is explain the various elements of policy design, uh, and then it discusses what the trade-offs are and then makes recommendations for what EdChoice believes is ideal policy. Got it. Yeah, and I know that's always needed because I get the same questions when I'm out there. So this is going to be useful for me, too, as well, going out there. So let's kind of yeah delve into some of these topics in the toolkit a little bit more. You mentioned like elig- eligibility. So what, what can you explain a little bit about the differences in eligibility and in which is the best practice? So for EdChoice, we believe that uh, school choice should be universal because really this is a part of public education. And the promise of public education is that every single child regardless of race, religion, national origin, family income, or whatever, should have access to a quality education. It's why our public schools uh, strive to be open to all children, at least that are within their uh, district boundaries. So uh, we do believe that these programs should be universal. Now, there's a number of different ways that they end up being targeted. Uh, In some cases, uh, they're targeted to low-income students. In some cases, they're targeted to uh, students who are uh, assigned to a low-performing district school. Uh, In other cases, they are um, limited to students who have certain special needs or certain disabilities. Uh, And if there are limited resources, it does make sense to to target programs to those who are most in need. Uh, But we should still always be striving toward a universal program. Uh, and, and that, I think, is is for at least two reasons. Um, even those students who are most in need uh, benefit more from a program that is for everybody than a policy that is just limited to a small number of students. Um, 
first of all, when, when you have a, a system that is so limited, it ends up just filling empty seats in the existing system, but it's not transformative, right? If you want to have the full benefit of a market in education, then you need to have a critical mass of people that are accessing that market. Uh, you need to have the freedom, obviously, in the market for uh, education providers to try new and different ways of uh, providing an education. But you also need uh, that demand side where you have lots of people that are then self-selecting uh, providers that are doing a better job uh, of, of meeting parents' needs. Uh, and then over time, you get the innovation that comes with a market. So if you want to unleash that dynamism, uh, it can't just be this small program that's providing uh, slightly more access to the existing system. It has to be uh, large enough that it's going to incentivize that sort of market dynamism. Uh, and secondly, you want it to be politically sustainable. Uh, and uh, low-income families uh, are very often um, it, really hard to organize politically. It's why welfare programs are often on the chopping block. You know, Milton Friedman said uh, programs for the poor tend to be poor programs. Uh, this is one of the reasons why. Uh, very rarely, however, do you see uh, entitlement programs like, say, Social Security on the chopping block uh, or Medicare, uh, whereas Medicaid ends up being on the chopping block. Uh, so nobody is talking about abolishing public schools because there are so many people that are part of that system. Uh, it just has that kind of support. Uh, so if you want – if your main goal – is a sense of, let's say, social justice. You want to empower the least among us. Uh, well, the best way to do that is to create a system of incentives where those who have more political power have it in their own self-interest to make sure that those with less political power uh, are also empowered with school choice. Right. And when you talk about, you know, transformative, a large segment, that is going to also automatically then include private schools. Some, right. I know you kind of discussed some of this, uh, but what are the rules that should be kind of enforced with private schools? What, where, where does that go? What are the best practices when going down that road? Well, there's all sorts of regulations that are discussed. And, and very often I get this question about, well, what about the accountability, right? How do we hold private schools accountable? And the first thing I think uh, advocates should recognize is that private schools are already far more accountable because they are directly accountable to families. The highest form of accountability is when uh, an institution is answerable to those who bear the direct consequences of their performance. Uh, because we don't have that in the district school system, because district schools are not directly accountable to parents, uh, especially lower income families who really don't have a choice, it's almost sort of like a public utility uh, for them, uh, we end up adding all of these regulations. And so they're accountable to an elected school board, they're accountable to uh, unelected bureaucrats at the state capitol or in Washington, DC, but they're not accountable to the families. And unfortunately, over time, we have come to confuse these forms of regulations for accountability. And so when we see that private schools don't have 
the same amount of regulations, we say, oh, well, they must not be accountable. Well, that's not true. It's because they have a higher form of accountability. Uh, but um, very often what we're talking about is testing. Uh, and so we say, well, you know, parents need there, – there is an uh, information asymmetry. Parents want to have some sort of um, outside, a third-party, objective source of information about how uh, schools are performing. And so in order to have an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, we should impose one single test on all schools, public, private, charter, what have you. Uh, that, that concern, um, makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of merit to the premise of this argument. Uh, but the, the problem is that if you mandate one single test for all schools, it creates very serious unintended consequences that can undermine the value of educational choice. Now, what do I mean by that? So if you have one single test that all schools have to, um, it, um, are measured by. Uh, first of all, uh, it can divert time away from untested subjects. So if you're only testing math and language arts, then those schools have a very strong incentive to spend more time on those subjects at the expense of others, including history or art, music, lunch, recess, etc. cetera. Um, especially when there are carrots and sticks that are attached you know, to, to these uh, performance metrics. Uh, you could also change how the subjects are taught. So even within a tested subject, schools are going to face pressure to focus on concepts that are covered on the state test at the expense of concepts that they might otherwise have covered, right? So if, uh, if they were in ninth grade algebra going to teach concepts A, B, C, and D, but the test is on subjects A, B, uh, Q, F, and P, well, they're going to change how they do that based on what's on the test as opposed to what they actually wanted to teach. Uh, and then also there's a problem with wasting time on test-taking strategies at the expense of real learning uh, just to meet the test. Uh, so we, we don't want a situation where private schools are um, either forced to distort how they teach and what they teach uh, or any school to, to do that in order to do better on the test. Um, or private schools choose, well, you know, we're just not going to participate in the program. And we've seen that in a number of states. In Louisiana, for example, uh, only about a third of private schools were participating in the state's voucher program because they required the state test. Uh, and a lot of schools said, well, you know, our curriculum is not aligned to that test. And so we're not going to uh, participate in that. Uh, if, if policymakers really want to have a, a test, we recommend going with a menu of nationally normed reference, norm reference tests, uh, like the SAT, the Stanford 10, the Iowa test of basic skills. Uh, so these tests measure how well a student is doing relative to his or her peers nationwide. Uh, and then what schools can do is they can choose the test that is already more aligned to what they're teaching as opposed to uh, having a single test imposed on them that they then have to change how they operate to align with the test. Uh, so this provides the right balance between accountability, providing information for parents that is important to them, 
when they're choosing a school, uh, but also allowing the private schools the freedom and flexibility to provide an education in the way that they believe best serves students. Right. Yeah I, yeah, I see the same thing over and over again. I think the menu of tests and there is a whole subset of math called psychometrics where you can compare, get into the comparison between different tests anyway. It's just it's actually more work and legislators sometimes don't like that work. But <laughs> but that's a whole different mm-hmm. story. <laughs> Looking to show off how much you care about freedom? Need a gift for someone? Head to the Heartland Institute store at store.heartland.org for t-shirts, posters, and books all advancing the freedoms you cherish. Grab a bumper sticker and show the world you believe in liberty. Find Heartland books such as Why Scientists Disagree About Global Warming, Power to the People, Nothing to Fear, and the Kid-Friendly Constitution. Grab a Heroes of Freedom t-shirt featuring Ayn Rand, Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek, and Martin Luther King Jr., Or get one of our always popular Don't Tread on Me shirts with Heartland's unique design. Those will be sure to start a conversation at your next barbecue or at the gym. Your destination for the freedom lovers in your life is the Heartland Store. Go to store.heartland.org and get shopping today. So when you're talking about different types of school choice programs... Uh, I know you talk a lot about in this policy too, Kat, the difference between vouchers and education savings account. Can you kind of explain a little bit about what each of those are and which one is best and why? All right. So uh, a traditional voucher, and this was, you know, Milton Friedman's uh, idea, although in, in some sense, it actually, the, the concept dates back to uh, at least uh, Thomas Paine uh, writing in the late 1700s uh, and then uh, John Stuart Mill writing in the mid 1980s, uh, sorry, mid 1800s. Uh, but uh, Milton Friedman in a famous essay uh, in 1955 popularizes this idea of the school voucher. And uh, so his insight was that although there's an economic uh, case for the government subsidizing education to make sure that um, every child has access to a quality education, no matter their parents' uh, level of income, it does not follow that the government must also run the schools. Uh, because there's all sorts of problems when the government is administering something. Uh, And so instead, he said, we should just empower the families directly, give them the money, and let them choose the school that works best for their child. Uh, Now, a voucher works sort of like a coupon, right? So you've got this, let's say, $5,000 coupon, and you can choose – any of these private schools that's willing to accept it, and then you redeem that coupon in that one school, uh, so in one place at one time. Uh, an ESA, however, and, and this is not to be confused, there are other things called uh, education savings accounts like uh, Coverdell or 529 uh, college saving plans. This is not what we're talking about. Uh, this is more like an education HSA, right? People t- know of their health savings accounts. So this allows, this is a private Um, bank account that is restricted use. You can only use it for eligible uh, educational expenditures, but you can use it at a wide variety of of different types of vendors. So you could use it for private school tuition, but also for tutoring, textbooks, online learning, homeschool curricula, and you can save the money um, from year to year. It can roll over and uh, so you can use it in multiple places 
and you can also save it. So what this does is it provides uh, families, just like with the voucher, you're using a portion of the public funds that otherwise would have been used for your child at a public school, uh, but it provides families with a much greater degree of freedom and flexibility to customize their child's education. Right. And yeah, it was Arizona passed the first education savings account back in 2011. And so it's it's and our parents really, really love it. But when you get into this, we get it back into accountability again. And with an education savings account being a restricted use account, who should be in charge of actually administering the program itself? All right. So this is a question that we come up with and not just for ESAs, but but also for um, tax credit scholarships and for vouchers, the three main types of um, private school choice programs, really educational choice programs, uh, which uh, state agency is uh, is best uh, aligned uh, for this. Uh, now, we think that uh, ideally it would not be the State Department of Education, and that may seem counterintuitive, but uh, one of the problems, I mean, if you think about public choice economics, uh, one of the insights of public choice economics is that many of the regulatory agencies that are tasked with overseeing a particular industry get captured by that industry. Uh, and then do whatever they can to protect that industry from uh, new entrants. Uh, so for example, the Interstate Commerce Commission was created in the late 1800s to regulate the railroads. It's eventually captured by the railroad industry and it erects barriers to entry for potential competitors to the railroads like buses and trucks. Uh, so we've seen a very similar thing with departments of education around the country that uh, then feel like they're not just meant to oversee this this uh, system of public education, but they need to protect it from potential competitors. And systems like vouchers or ESAs end up being portrayed as um, hostile to, to the existing system. Now, we don't see it that way. Uh, we think um, the more options, the better, because we're, we're trying to look at it from the perspective of parents. Uh, but for those who are looking at it at the, from the perspective of the system, they see alternatives to the system as a threat to the system. Uh, so we think that uh, since these are programs that primarily are, are dealing with not the running of private schools or anything like that, but just the um, dispersal of public funds, uh, it's best overseen or managed by the Department of Re Revenue or the Treasury or uh, whatever that department is known as in your particular state. They have different names in different states and sometimes states will have uh, a Department of Revenue and a Treasury, but they do different things. So, but essentially in a part, a department that is primarily tasked with um, finances. And that's for a, a few reasons. One, uh, you, there's, usually a greater uh, degree of competence and experience with um, handling programs that have massive number of disbursements uh, to individuals. Um, the departments of education usually don't have that kind of experience. And, and also, uh, you don't have in the Department of Revenue or the Treasury um, that 
usually you don't have that sort of ideological hostility to the program. They just look at this as like one of many different types of programs they administer. And their primary concern is making sure that everything runs smoothly. Um, also, we, we very much support the idea of third-party vendors administering these programs. So, for example, in Arizona, they have Class Wallet, uh, or in um, Florida, they are a step up for students, uh, which is also contracting with SAP Ariba. So, it's a private nonprofit scholarship organization uh, working with this other company uh, in order to manage these accounts. Now, why is that so important? Well, Arizona for a long time was actually, they had their program administered by the Department of Education, and there were all sorts of, of problems with the department running this program. Uh, so, for example, uh, you've got a lot of low-income families that wanted to access the program. Uh, they wanted information about the program. Well, the department said, we're only hosting uh, uh, information sessions during bankers hours because that's when we get paid. So nine to five, Monday through Friday, when a lot of uh, low income families are there, you know, they're working then they want something on nights and weekends. Uh, a lot of them, um, you know, are first immigrate, first generation immigrants. Uh, they don't speak English fluently. Well, the department at first was not providing anything in Spanish. Uh, and there was also a situation where, uh, Families were being told they had to fax. Now, again, this was enacted in 19, uh, sorry, 2011. Uh, families were being told that they needed to fax in their applications. And along with their application, if they were a student with special needs, they had to include their, their IEP, their individualized education plan. Well, those can sometimes run for hundreds of pages. So this was uh, not only a great expense for the families, but very quickly, the Department of Education runs out of ink in their fax machine. Right. Well, right. The department, because it's a government agency, they've got to fill out forms, you know, procurement forms. They can't just like run to Staples and, and get more ink. So now parents are seeing that their faxes aren't going through. They start calling. Well, they don't have the staff to answer all these calls. They just shut off the phones. And this is right before the uh, enrollment period ends. So, I mean, there's just been all sorts of problems. So look at Florida, by contrast. Here you have a nonprofit, Step Up for Students, that's, that's administering the program. It's in their interest for two reasons. One, because the people who are at this organization are invested in the success of the program. And two, because they get paid with a, a, you know, a small cut of the – they get an, an admin fee. It's in their interest to sign up as many people as possible. So what does this difference mean, this change in incentives? Well, it means that they're putting out information in Spanish and other languages for families that, that speak different languages. It means that they're hosting uh, information sessions on nights and weekends. It means they're going out of their way to go and advertise the program, talk to uh, families wherever they're found, in churches, in uh, boys and girls clubs, you know, in local community centers, wherever they are. Uh, and when, you know, parents are trying to apply, they have people there to help them, right? So to make the problem as painless as possible. So it's much more customer friendly. Uh, so that's why we advise that if you can have a third party, um, nonprofit, uh, administer the program, uh, often working with a third party vendor, very often like class wallet that is for profit, uh, that is much better 
and more aligned with the needs of families than having a state education agency run a program like this. Right. So, yeah, and it's really good back to the Board of Education. They're an education group where some of the other groups are strictly financial. And these programs are more about the financial management than it is about the education at that point. But I know we do get into one of the excuses I know you hear a lot and I hear a lot is about the potential for fraud. So what Mm -hmm. are some of the things you put in there in the policy toolkit to help kind of deal with fraud? What are the best practices for making sure fraud doesn't occur or if it does can be rooted out quickly? Right. So there are there are three different models for um, the disbursements of funds to to reduce fraud. Uh, The the early model was with the uh, what's called the reimbursement model. Uh, so Florida started with this, for example. Uh, that means that that ESA families put up their own money, they pay for whatever product or service, uh, and then they submit the receipts to uh, the department or the third party that's that's administering the program. Now the the benefit here is that because they're putting the money up front and they're only getting reimbursed for valid expenditures, you're not going to have any fraud, right? You're not going to have uh, any um, misspending. Uh, the downside is twofold. Uh, one, it is very difficult to administer a program like that. You need lots and you have a large bureaucracy. You need lots and lots of people to be pouring over all of these receipts, especially if you've got you know thousands or tens of thousands of families, each of them making uh, potentially dozens or even hundreds of purchases a year. Uh, this very quickly becomes a, a real challenge to administer. Uh, secondly, uh, it, it makes it really hard for lower income families because they have to now front the money and then wait sometimes months before they get reimbursed. Uh, so that's not a particularly user friendly system. Uh, second system is the debit card system. Arizona started with this kind of system. Now, if the system is large enough, uh, you can have individual product codes so you can only purchase, uh, products that uh, have an eligible code, but when the when you have a smaller number, like a few thousand um, students participating in the program, then it it you don't have the economy of scale to do that, and what you end up using is just merchant category codes or MCC codes. Now that means you can't run off to Caesar's Palace and use this debit card. It's not going to work. Uh, but there are a number of vendors, like let's say Walmart, that have you know dozens or even hundreds of eligible products, but then tens of thousands of ineligible products. Uh, so you still have to have a system where, after the fact, you're submitting the receipts. So you still need people to be pouring over those. Uh, although, at, and you're going to have some amount of uh, of misspending, often very innocent. You know, people that buy, um, let's say pens and paper or notebooks, but those are not eligible categories. So they, they had the best intention in mind. They think, well, it's for education, but they didn't read the fine print. Uh, so you, you do have uh, some element of misspending, although the, the, um, the state's auditor general in Arizona found that there was about 1% of e- ESA funds that were misspent, which is a, an improper payment rate far below most government programs. So it was, it was really still administered quite well. Uh, but there's going to be some amount of, of fraud, and and um, it still can be difficult to administer. 
Uh, a third version, and this is the system that uh, Florida has adopted uh, and that Ar Arizona is transitioning into the system. We also see in North Carolina and Tennessee a move toward the system. Uh, so it's, it's an online platform. Uh, so Class Wallet, SAP Ariba, uh, you can go onto their website or their app and it allows uh, users to purchase eligible educational goods and services online, you know, similar to like Amazon or something like that. Uh, so this model provides the highest form of financial accountability because uh, the only goods and services that are offered on the platform are services that have been vetted and are eligible. Uh, and so they, they can only access those and you don't need somebody pouring over all these receipts again, because you only have, um, people buying those goods and services on the platform. The additional benefit is that, uh, this can actually provide a higher degree of academic accountability because just like Amazon or Yahoo or similar websites, uh, ESA families can now provide reviews about their personal lived experience with these products and services that they purchased using their ESA funds. And then other ESA families, before they make a purchase, can read uh, the reviews from other ESA families uh, to inform their decision making. Uh, so this actually would provide the highest level not only of financial accountability, but also of academic accountability. Cool. Uh, you'd mentioned earlier tax credit scholarships. I know we haven't really talked about them as, as yet, but a different avenue for educational choice. How do tax credit scholarships work and what do lawmakers need to know if they want to implement a tax credit scholarship program? Yeah, so uh, tax credit scholarships are really interesting because they are the least understood of the different types of school choice programs out there, but uh, of the private programs, uh, so not charters or not inter-district choice, but of the private programs, uh, they they serve the most students and operate in the most states. Uh, so there are 18 states that have some form of tax credit scholarship program, uh, and they're serving about 300,000 students nationwide. Uh, so the way a tax credit scholarship works is that uh, individuals or corporations, depending on the state, uh, and sometimes both will make contributions to a nonprofit scholarship organization. In some states, they're known as scholarship granting organizations or school tuition organizations or student support organizations. But these scholarship organizations are uh, registered nonprofits that help families uh, afford private school tuition. Uh, the donors to these organizations then receive a tax credit. Uh, when they file their taxes and that depending on the state ranges from 50% to 100% of their contribution. Uh, and so there are a whole number of, of different elements of a tax credit scholarship program. I won't go too much in the weeds on this podcast, but for example, what is the tax credit value going to be? Is it going to be 50, 100, 75, somewhere in between, uh, right? Are, are you going to ta uh, put a cap on the number, uh, the amount of tax credits available. Are you going to do an individual per donor cap? Are you going to have a cap on 
the total number of tax credits available? Uh, is that going to have an escalator clause? That means that the cap increases over time to meet rising demand. Uh, these are all sorts of questions that, that you're going to have. Uh, the scholarship granting organizations, what sort of regulations are going to be put on them? Um, you know, what level of um, administrative expenses can they keep? Can they keep 10%, which is sort of the industry standard? Uh, Pennsylvania allows up to 20%. They're the only state that does that, uh, although most actually um, use less than 10, even in Pennsylvania. Uh, Florida says, you know, only 3%, but 0% for the first three years. It says all different ways that you can design a program like this. Uh, so the toolkit helps uh, – lawmakers uh, navigate all of these different choices and figure out what they should do. You know, for example, with the tax credit value, uh, if you have a, a lower value at like, let's say 50%, uh, that's going to look better for your fiscal note because uh, for every dollar that's contributed, it's only reducing the state revenue by 50 cents. Uh, on the other hand, the, that is not uh, as great an incentive as a 100% tax credit. Uh, so if your goal is to help as many students as possible, you may want to increase the tax credit percentage, right? So how do we navigate that? What's the right number? Well, these are the sorts of things that the policy toolkit uh, helps policymakers navigate. Cool. If somebody wants to uh, learn more about the policy toolkit, how can they actually get a copy of it where do, where do they go to find find ed choice as well as the toolkit uh, so they can find at our website edchoice.org uh, the policy toolkit is at ed, edchoice.org slash edchoice dash policy dash toolkit you can also just find it by going to the edchoice.org website clicking policymakers up at the top and then if you scroll down uh, just a, a, a about halfway down the page, you're going to find the EdChoice Policy Toolkit. And of course, uh, people that have additional questions are happy to, I'm happy to field those questions. So they're welcome to email me at jason at edchoice.org. Cool. So that was my next question is how can they contact you directly if they have more questions? So uh, Jason, I want to thank you on behalf of the Harlan Institute and our listeners for being able to join us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, listeners, I also want to thank you for joining us today. And please check Heartland's website, heartland.org, as we continue to track education choice issues across the country. Make sure to also go to our PolicyBot website, your one-stop shop for free market solutions to public policy problems. And if you're hearing one of these podcasts for the first time, make a point to subscribe to our daily podcast. Thank you so much for joining us and make sure to have a great day.